Well, I wonder, as you think about Christmas, if you can identify in your mind your favorite Christmas, the most meaningful Christmas you've ever had. Um, it's possible that, um, that you would identify that in association with maybe the greatest gift you've ever received for Christmas. And I can tell you that Janet and I know exactly our favorite Christmas and the greatest gift we ever got for Christmas. Um, it was the Christmas of 1997. It actually started in October with a phone call and a lady from an area ministry called and she said, um, Pastor Van, do you and Janet want a baby? And I said, uh, let me pray about it, yes. And uh, that began one of the greatest stories of our lives. Um, and that Christmas, believe it or not, in God's sovereign timing, that baby was born on December 23rd. On December 23rd, and he had some respiratory issues, and so they had to keep him in the NICU and watch over him. And it turned out that, that on Christmas morning, December 25th, 1997, that Janet and I were able to hold that baby on Christmas morning for the very first time. Later that afternoon, uh, that mother who had special needs um, and made the most loving choice she could ever make, took that baby boy and handed him over to Janet. And she said, here you go. And she had a big smile on her face. She said, here you go, he's all yours. And we were bawling and blubbering. What a gift, a literal baby for Christmas. Can you imagine that? Well, as you can relate in your own experiences, and as you know well, one of the things that we did carefully was name that baby, right? And so Janet really worked the names and was thinking it through, and, and, and I was with her with it, but so important, and I think she did a beautiful job naming them. Um, she selected Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan means... Gracious gift of God. Isn't that a good name? Gracious gift of God. And then we named him Ronald. That was her daddy's name. We went to be with the Lord the first year we were married. And that was her granddad's name. The old strip miner from up in Preston County. A great man who shook hands with um, Henry Firestone and Albert Einstein. And um, not Albert Einstein. Um, I forget. I shouldn't have added that part of the story. <laughs> and his last name's Marceau because I don't know where that name came from out of the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Um, Jonathan, gracious gift of God, Ronald Marceau. His name has great meaning to us. And he identifies with our family. What a gift that God gave us that Christmas. I mean, can you imagine opening your presents and you, a real baby for Christmas? I still really can't wrap my mind quite around it. This morning, as I invite you, though, to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, I, I want you to relate to that concept. I want you to recognize that in a very real way, we have been given a baby for Christmas. It was given to all of us. And I also want you to recognize in the, in the, in the significance of his naming, we are greatly encouraged and strengthened in our faith. We're in a very familiar passage this morning as we focus this Christmas season on the names of Christ. We started with Jesus, that name above all names, Yahweh saves. 
And he came and he will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. And then this prophetic passage in Isaiah chapter 9 is very familiar to us. You read it on Christmas cards, you see it in greetings, on banners, and it is familiar. You need to know that we're jumping right into the middle of a, pro a prophetic passage by the prophet Isaiah where the Lord is revealing truth to him to share with the nation Israel. And it is true that this has a more immediate prophetic fulfillment. That is that Isaiah is making a statement about a real king, a human king, who would, God would raise up to serve in Israel. You have to agree with me, I think, as many of our conservative evangelical scholars uh, say with confidence, that this also, though, has a dual meaning. It, it has a, an immediate fulfillment that would take place in Israel, but it also had with it, uh, and you see in the language, it's not difficult to imagine how God is showing them that there is yet to come a king who will rule over them. And remember, and he uses that, those words, the forever. Remember, Jesus is the forever king. And one of the things you need to understand that in the context of this passage, Israel had horrible leadership. They lacked integrity. They were godless. The nation was breaking down and they longed for a righteous king. They longed for someone who would govern and rule with justice. And God says, I will give him to you. And um, he did that at a certain level. But then this is also a prophetic look forward at our Lord Jesus who would be born and then who someday will come at his second coming and rule and reign uh, in justice then as well. Let's read these two, two verses. Uh, we're using for our text just Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And you'll recognize them if you don't already know where we're going. Here it is, ESV, for to us or unto us a child is born. There's the baby we've been given for Christmas. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will govern. He will govern Israel. And his name shall be called. And here it is. Four couplets, four names with two words each. Strange names for a baby. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. See the language? How could this be a, just a normal earthly king? He's going to govern and, and it will, there will never end. And he says, uh, and he will rule on the throne of David. Okay, uh, uh, an implication of Messiah. And over his kingdom, David's kingdom, and to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. They like us, we can relate to longing for righteous and just governors Kings and presidents who, who rule with justice and righteousness. And, and God's saying, I will give that to you. We will also then, for any, but notice what he says then. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? The forever kingdom of our great King Jesus and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, if you have your notes nearby, I think you'll find it helpful maybe to fill in the blanks and use it as a listening guide as we remind ourselves what a wonderful gift we've received in a baby. And it's a real baby, a real baby, Jesus. And this is what he's given us. Now, I want us to relate to some of the 
uh, implications of his names. Now, out of his character spring his names, or his names reflect his character. And we're going to recognize what a wonderful gift this is as we recognize these attributes and these character traits of our Lord Jesus that are seen in his name. And the first thing I want you to see, though, before we focus on that, is, in, is number one, I want you to see that when God gave us this baby, his son, for Christmas, it was an, it was, he was making a great statement. It was an incredible statement. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 6 is that it was a statement of his love. It was a statement of his love. What he was saying to us is that people are valuable. Notice what he says. For unto us, okay, it was the people's baby. It was given to the people. For unto us, a child is born. Now we know this reflected in the New Testament, don't we? And in fact, throughout our message today, we're going to bump over to the New Testament and we're going to reinforce these realities of what we see in Christ that are reflected in this prophetic passage. But the first thing I want you to see is what we know so familiarly in John 3.16, for example. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? He loved the world. God loves people. And one of the things we see, even as we read it right here in verse 6, as he pro prophesies, for unto us, the Israel and the world, a child is given. It is a statement of God's love and it states that people are valuable to God. Let's reinforce this by turning to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and I want to add verse 4 to what's written in your notes there. But Titus was a young pastor to whom the Apostle Paul was writing. And he mentions this reality right here of how God loves people. Titus chapter 3, and look at verses 4 and 5. I want you to see what motivated God to give the world this baby, his own son. Why would someone give away their own child? Only for two reasons. Either you can't take care of him or you love that person so much you'll give him that baby. God did it because he loved us so much and Jesus could do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. So out of his love. Look what Paul says to Titus, a young pastor, that Paul is, is reinforcing his theology, emphasizing the points that he should emphasize in his ministry. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. When did he appear? He appeared in a manger in Bethlehem. God the Father sent him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son in Bethlehem. All right, through Mary, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not, not because we're so good, not because we've done so many good things that we're worth saving. We are not. In fact, the scripture is clear that all of our righteousnesses are as what? As filthy rags. We cannot impress a holy God. Not because of righteous works that we've done. But according to what? According to his own mercy. Own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through whom? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that we could be justified through grace. 
You can go back to Isaiah. There it is. That's just one sampling. We'll not take time to reinforce that through multiple verses. It's a good exercise for you if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible to look up those, the verse that I gave you. And, and no doubt you'll have a few more verses that are referenced there. And you do your own little study. And notice how much God loves people. It's a statement of God's love. People are valuable to God. I was thinking about how in my father's own life and ministry, this was reinforced. Uh, we grew up in the south part of Chicago where my dad pastored a little Bible church. And just a couple hour drive away on I-94 around the bottom of Lake Michigan into southern Michigan uh, was uh, from Illinois to Michigan uh, was a little Bible camp that we worked at at starting. It was called Christie Lake Bible Camp. I've referenced it often through the years. And there we had the great privilege by, by God's benevolence to have a, a piece of property in a cabin that we called it. And we often took that two hour drive out of Chicago up to Lake, up to Christie Lake. And there we worked at the camp. And through the years, my dad established friendships with many of the farmers and farms in the area. And partly because my dad was always pursuing uh, fruit and vegetables. He loved the harvest. And in that part of the country of southern Michigan, sandy soil, lots of strawberries, blueberries, peach orchards, apple orchards, um, just uh, cantaloupe. It's just a bountiful um, place for fruit and vegetables. And my dad would go to these farms and we would pick. And boy, would we pick. And we would harvest. Uh, one of the farms where we picked peaches it was a farm that was worked in those days, they called them migrant workers. And they had these little white shanties, the little shacks that they lined up and lived in. They, they lived very poorly. They were not compensated very much at all. And they moved with the warm weather and the, and the time of the harvest. And most of them came from Mexico, Central America, Northern South America. And they worked the farms all up and down the coast, all up and through the Midwest. And they would work with the seasons. And there would be hundreds of them picking cucumbers by hand, hundreds of them picking strawberries by hand, and so forth. And on this one farm where we picked peaches, a big peach orchard, um, there was one of these migrant workers, a Mexican man, who was just a precious dear man, who had left his family in Mexico, and he worked up there. But the farmer of this farm um, kept him there all year long. It was by his, he was willing to stay, and that was what he did to support his family. He sent his money back to Mexico. And when all the other migrant workers left the area, and they got wintertime in Michigan, the owner of the farm left for Florida, and he needed someone to stay and, and feed the dogs and keep the water pipes from freezing. And then when he could, he would begin pruning the fruit trees. And he lived in a little cabin around back on the backside of that farm. And you know that uh, my dad would take him food. My dad would stop and visit him. My dad bought him a Spanish Bible that he could read. My dad would stop and check in on him after big snowstorms. And you know what that did to a nine-year-old van sitting next to him in the truck, the station wagon? My dad cared about people because he knew that God valued people. And I think Christmas time is a wonderful time for us to value people. And there is kind of an emphasis on that, isn't it? Of, of kind of being extra kind to people. But you know, one of the things that we get out of the Christmas story to apply to our lives really year round is that, that people are valuable to God. How do you see people? God sees people as valuable, so valuable that he gave us his own son as a literal, real baby 
at Christmas time. Secondly, I want you to see uh, that this is also a statement of his grace. It's a statement of his grace. When we read that unto us a child is born and unto us a child is, is given, we recognize, don't we, in our sinful state that we don't deserve this baby. And so it is only and all an act of grace. That is receiving something I don't deserve. That's what grace is. When God gives me something I don't deserve. And it is an act of his grace because in the mind of God, listen, understand about his grace. Sinners are salvageable. Sinners are salvageable. Not only are people valuable, but sinners are salvageable. And I don't know how you see people. It is difficult for me sometimes to care about certain people. Maybe people who who blow up other people for no good reason. And I think to myself sometimes, why don't... Why doesn't God just zap them? Well, if they don't get to his cross and bow their knees willingly, someday God will zap them. But do you recognize that God sent his son to be that precious gift on Christmas for all people everywhere equally? He didn't come for you more than any ISIS terrorist even. Isn't that remarkable? We don't always think like that, and we don't always see people as salvageable, but sinners are salvageable. Isn't it true, don't you think, that we give up on people a little bit too easily? Man, some of you have been praying for broken people for years. Some of you have a heart that is broken, maybe even by your own children, and for years you've been asking God to fix them. Can I tell you this Christmas, don't give up. Don't give up. God salvages sinners. And you think to yourself, they will never change. And they're just like the dog that keeps returning to its vomit and they're on the cycle of sin. It's never going to happen. You don't know that. And know that God loves them enough that He sent His Son for them and that He salvages sinners. Let's read 1 Timothy 1.15 and reinforce this in our, in our New Testament as well. Can we do that? In 1 Timothy, Apostle Paul is writing to another pastor, young Timothy, and he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he's putting down um, what he calls is a faithful or true saying. He says it in such a way that it's a, it's a repeated pattern in the, in the writing of the Apostle Paul. And what we know from that is that it was either a sort of a liturgical statement that they would say out loud together as a congregation, or possibly it was the words from a hymn that they would repeat. And the Apostle Paul uses this expression uh, different times, and he'll say, this is a faithful saying. Or in the ESV, it's translated, the saying is trustworthy. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, you can rely on this. This is true. I'm telling you. And you know this to be true. And this is something that we know and we say over and over as a congregation. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save, say the next word, sinners. Why did he come? Why did the baby, why was the baby born? To save sinners. Wow. And the Apostle Paul said, if you line them all up, I am the foremost of all those sinners. If you line them up from worst to least, as far as their sin scale goes, the Apostle Paul said, I'm the worst of all the sinners. Remember, he was Saul of Tarsus. Remember, he murdered people for their faith in Jesus Christ. He bashed in their 
front windows and he burned their homes and he ruined their reputations. And I think the Apostle Paul grieved over his past sin, but he reveled in the grace of God that had brought salvation and salvaged a sinner like him. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Now as we return to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, not only do we see that this is a statement, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Clearly, that reminds us of His love and that people are valuable. It reminds us of His grace and that sinners are salvageable. But thirdly, I want you to see, particularly in the implications of the meanings of His name, that we recognize the goodness of God. And what we see in the goodness of God in the names is, first of all, I want you to see, we, we recognize in this gift of a baby at Christmas, the greatest gift we could ever receive is that help is available. Help is available. Let's look down at our text. And the government will be upon his shoulders, so he's going to rule, he's going to reign. And it says now, and his name shall be called, and the first name is Wonderful Counselor. Isn't that an interesting name? He's the Wonderful Counselor. Now, the idea of wonderful there could be translated in the Hebrew exceptional or distinguished. He's a distinguished or exceptional counselor. But what I want to emphasize is that, that it emphasizes the miraculous. It's wonderful as in the wonder or marvel of this counselor. He is a miraculous, distinguished, exceptional counselor. And wasn't our Lord Jesus all of that? I mean, he came and when he spoke, people listened and lives were transformed. And so he was a wonderful, and, it, and didn't he do miracles to reinforce his message? He was a marvelous, miraculous, exceptional, wonderful, and then counselor. The idea there is that of a wise guide. Not a wise guy, but a wise guide. Someone who is a guide for my life who has great wisdom. Howard Merrill's been that to me. This afternoon at the dinner table, he doesn't know it yet, I have a, a pastoral quandary I'm going to share with him and get his insight on. He's one of my counselors. You're going to find this one interesting. <laughs> I, I have another 70-year-old pastor. He's only 66. Um, I have another pastor who's 70 who I call on the phone and I talk and I ask questions. He's my guide. He counsels me. I play racquetball with Jim Shoopy, who's 74 years old, and I still have only beat him one time. Every Wednesday morning, and, and every Wednesday morning, I have something that I purposely, intentionally ask him about. That, that I would say, what do you think about this? Or how would you do this? What do you think about this situation? And he guides me, he counsels me. Listen. All of us have problems, don't we? All of us have needs in our lives. What are you going to do? And do you find yourself running around seeking counsel from godless people or all kinds of different sources, receiving counsel, rather than turning to the wonderful, exceptional, distinguished, miraculous, wise guide that we have in our Lord Jesus? Does it ever, you ever do that before? You ever realize that you're seeking answers? You're trying to solve a quandary? You don't know what to do about something and then you stop and realize, I haven't even prayed about this yet. Listen, one of the, one of the great parts of the gift of receiving this baby is that he is a wonderful counselor. 
We're not going to take time to look at it. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I think we'll skip this one. You look it up if you wish. Let me remind you that in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2, um, Paul is emphasizing to the Colossian believers uh, that Christ is the center of everything. All things were made by him and for him. And that all things hold together by him. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he focuses on him being the personification of all knowledge and wisdom. In him dwell all knowledge and wisdom. That's our Lord Jesus, isn't it? He, he never had a question that he couldn't answer. He, he has never not known the answer of any problem. That's your Lord Jesus. This Christmas, you look to your wonderful counselor and quiet your heart as life presses in upon you. Secondly, I want you to see in his names that victory is achievable. Victory is achievable. I like this part of his name. And this next name is Mighty God. And, and it presents to us another one of the Hebrew names of God. And this one's a little bit different. It is El Gibor. El Gibor. Now, Almighty God is El Shaddai. Almighty God. El Gabor is mighty God. And the reason is, is that, that, that Gabor is translated mighty with the ramifications of strength or military might. In other words, the idea is that this is warrior terminology. It's warrior terminology. He is mighty God as in don't mess with him. We can reinforce this in our Old Testament with a great illustration from David's writings in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Will you turn there? I want you to see this. This is um, a really interesting passage. This is the end of David's life. His life is almost over. What a life he has lived. What a story he has written with his life. This man after God's own, own heart with, um, who walked uh, uh, in such an interesting and lived such an interesting life. At the end of his life, David was writing down and giving an account of some of the men who had been most loyal to him. And he calls them his Gibor men, his mighty men. And look at the example of who they are. This is the same word when you see, read the word mighty in verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 23, of verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men of David, the Gibor men of David. And this baby in a manger, that we're, he is the Gibor God. He is the mighty God. Now look at the illustration here. And by the way, young ladies, and those of you of childbearing age, I think what we have here are some wonderful names to name your boys if you have boys. All right, they're great. They are. I wish this was my name. Here it is. These are the names of the mighty men with whom David had. Joshabashibeth. There you go. Joshabashibeth. I wish that was my name. You could always call me Josh. But here it is. He was a Tachmanite. He wasn't even an Israelite. He, but he was loyal to David. He was, look at David says, and he was the chief of all the three mighty. He kind of puts a hierarchy together here. He said, these are all of my Gabor men. And, and here's the number one guy. And then there's these three who distinguished themselves. And then there's these other guys, and they're all Gabor. They're mighty. Look what he says. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's a man. That's a mighty man. Joshabashibeth. I'm looking for that name, ladies. 
And next to him, among the three mighty men, there's another good name, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, that's not a good name, son of, son of Ahohai, ah and you don't want to use that name because Ahohai might get confused with Ohio, and you don't want to do that. And he was with David when they, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And look at this. And the men of Israel withdrew. Come on, boys. The Philistines are coming. Let's protect our homeland. And, and he's standing there. Eleazar is. Eleazar. You could call him Eli, maybe, or, or uh, Zar. You could, you could, that's a good name. It's a workable name. Eleazar. And Eleazar looks around, and all of the men have fled. And he says, not on my watch. I don't do that. And he rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned. Oh, yeah, they returned after him only to strip the slain. Next to him was Shama. That's a pretty good name. Sounds like an Indian uh, witch doctor or something. Next to him was Shama, the son of Aji, the Herite. And the Philistines gathered together at Lehi and there was a plot or a, a field filled with lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines once again, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot. He defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. Later on, you're going to read and one of my buddies, you'll read about Beniah. Beniah, one of my buddies named his boys Beniah. You can call him Ben. It's a great name. He's the guy who went down in a pit on a snowy day to kill a lion. See, I, I might do it, but I wouldn't do it on a snowy day. <laughs> Says Beniah killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. These were David's Gibor men, mighty men. Do you see the ramifications in the name of this baby in a manger? He is mighty God. It means that victory is achievable in my life. Are you living a defeated life today? You need to strengthen your faith and look to the baby, the mighty God. Second part of that is that problems are solvable. Let her see. Problems are solvable because he is God. The baby is God. He is L. That is strong one. He is God. L. God. It's a word of strength. It's used over and over in the names of God. Elohim. He is the strong one. And problems are solvable. And we... We become overwhelmed, don't we? And we think, what are we going to do? I don't know what you're going to do. But I know that it's a time to put your eyes on the mighty God, the Gabor warrior, who will solve your problems. I don't know what God's going to do. I just know he can do it. Get your eyes on Jesus this Christmas. Wait upon him to solve your problems. You know, often, often though, young people listen to me, the reason we have such horrible problems in our lives is because we haven't looked to the strong one to begin with early on in our lives. Let him be your Gibor from the beginning, your mighty God. Never be embarrassed of this Jesus. He is the name above all names. Notice later, he adds now, thirdly, um, that... He is the everlasting father. Isn't that a strange name? I think what I get out of that is letter D. It is that God is knowable. 
The everlasting Father. That sounds pretty ethereal, doesn't it? It sounds like outer space. He is outside of time and outside of substance in the material world. God, God is by definition spirit and our heavenly Father doesn't have a face. And He's the everlasting Father. But isn't it strange that He would say the baby given to us as a gift in the manger on that Christmas, the real baby, is the everlasting Father. What in the world does that mean? How is the baby the father? I, I don't know. But here's what I think it at least implies, okay? It implies, and this is not in your notes, but let me give you four thoughts that I think this speaks to concerning our Lord Jesus. The first one is, I think that it speaks to the, to the eternality of Christ. The baby in the manger is just as eternal as the father, Christ lived outside of time before he entered time. In fact, that was the great humiliation that Philippians 2 talks about. That he humbled himself and he came from outside of time and space and he entered into time and space. That means he limited himself. But he is part of the, he is part of the Godhead and it is an eternal Godhead. So, listen, we don't have three different gods. We have one God who has three personalities. Go figure. God the Father, God the Son, or the second member of the Godhead, who at the least took on the role of Son at the Incarnation. But He is thought of in the mind of God, according to Hebrews 1, as His eternal Son. He was present at creation. Colossians said He spoke all things into existence. The Son did. And that by His Word, all things hold together. That's the Word of the second member of the Godhead, the baby in the manger. That's power. That's mighty God. And he says, this baby, we're going to call him the eternal father. And at, and at least it's an identity with the eternality of God. This attribute of God that is eternality. He is, he is eternal in nature. He was never created. He did not create himself because then he could uncreate himself. Nothing created him. Nothing can act upon him. He has always existed. And that's about as well as we can do with it. No matter how many words you write in small print in a thick book. That's it. He is the eternal God and he says it and he is. He was outside of time and space. Secondly, I want you to see that it, it has at least to do something with the shared identity of the Godhead. And Jesus is, has a shared identity with the Father. For this one, let's look at John 14. Let's look at John 14. It won't take us long to wrap up. And, um, but notice this important passage. And it is a remarkable passage. I doubt that I could really exposit it, but look at the words. Look what it says. It's just incredible. So Philip asks a great question. He makes a statement, um, really. Um, it's chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 8. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Okay, you got it? It's kind of like, Lord, would you show us the Father and then we'll just be happy. We're good. We just want to see God. Now look at the language. Look what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Whoever, in other words, you want to see the Father, why aren't you looking at me? Look what he says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoa. See, when he would say things like that around the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him. 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? No, Philip, why would you ask such a dumb question? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why would you then say, show us the Father? Here I am, the everlasting Father, in the form of the second member of the Godhead, I guess. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? We are one in essence. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or if you don't believe my words, at least believe me by my works, he says, by my miracles. I mean, can you really unpack what Jesus is saying there? At the least, he's identifying himself in essence and equality with the Father. And I think that's what the name Eternal Father, referencing a baby in a manger, is meaning to us here. He is one with his Father. We do not serve three different gods. We serve one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, but they are three distinct personalities. Secondly, it is unity in Trinity, which I've been referencing, basically. So God is a Trinity, but it is a unity. It is one, but it is triune. So this is a reference to unity and Trinity, and I think it is also a statement about deity, that Jesus Christ is God. He is the eternal Father. He is God. You want to look at God? Look at Jesus. There he is. That's about as well as I can do explaining what it means to look at the baby and say, he is the eternal Father. Wow. I have to just say, wow. How does that work? Hey, do you think that we're going to learn some things about the Godhead in the eternal state? When we get to heaven, do you think our little pea brains are going to be enlightened and we're going to break out in worship like we've never broken out before as the glory of the Godhead is revealed to us? Maybe this Christmas, when you see the baby for the first time in your life, you would say eternal father. Wow. I'm not sure how that works. But there he is in all of his eternality, his identity with the Father, in identifying with the triunity, and in all of his substance of deity, an essence of deity. God is knowable through Jesus. He's the everlasting Father. Finally, and let's just close with this. You need to know that peace is attainable this Christmas because of the gift of the baby. Peace is attainable. I see people all the time who aren't at peace. People who are so troubled. It's almost always because they've not paid attention to Almighty God. And they've brought just so much trouble upon themselves. And you need someone to calm the sea. And there it is. It's Yahweh Shalom. He is the Prince of Peace. Yahweh Shalom. In our troubled world, he never loses control and he can speak to the sea as our Lord Jesus did in Mark chapter 4 and he can say shalom. And the laws of the universe bend to his words. He is Jehovah Shalom. And Jesus is our peace. Do you know there's no greater way that, he is, that Jesus, Yahweh, Jesus, Jehovah, Joshua in the Old Testament. We talked about that last week. There is no greater way that Yahweh is our peace through Christ than when it comes to reconciling us to our Heavenly Father 
because of all of our sin. We are condemned because of our sinful state. We are all equal sinners in the presence of a holy God. Romans chapter 5 says that it was even while we were sinners that he loved us. In later in the chapter of 5, it says that he reconciled us unto God through Christ. You know what that word reconciled means? It means that there were two parties that had split up and were at war with one another. Really, God was not at war with us. He was pursuing us, but we ran from Him and, and we were running away from Him and we were doing battle with God. We're really, can I tell you, God, what I'm going to do? What must we sound like and look like to, to El Gabor? We're a joke. We think we can run from Him. And in our sinfulness, we are far from God and we run, but through Christ, He does this. He takes two parties that were separated and at war and He turns them around and He brings them back to one another and He reconciles them. He brings peace, shalom to them. He satisfies all that was needed of repentance and forgiveness to wipe away all the sin. That's what happens at the cross. A holy God meets up with a rebellious people and Christ, Yahweh Shalom, Jesus Shalom, our peace, is on the cross and He makes peace between God the Father and all of the sons of the earth who humble their hearts and their knee before the cross. Is He your Jehovah Shalom this Christmas? I don't know what has you disturbed. I'm sure you're disturbed. All people I ever meet are disturbed. I'm disturbed most of the time. I'm preaching to myself. How embarrassing someday to come home to our Heavenly Father, to our Lord Jesus, this marvelous Lord Jesus, this name above all names, and to have a record on display of all of the days we stressed out in anxiety when He is our peace. So we see him with your eyes of faith, believing his word, Yahweh Shalom. So this Christmas, have you received the greatest gift? Have you reconciled with your heavenly Father through our peacemaker, the Lord Jesus? And don't you think that this would open the door to worship this Christmas at a whole new level? That the baby in a manger, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Yahweh Shalom, Prince of Peace, is worthy of our praise and our worship, isn't he? God forgive us for not worshiping at Christmas of all times of the year. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? As you stand and with your head bowed, would you just ask yourself if you've been reconciled to God? Are you running from God today? Or maybe you know Christ as your Savior. You've been to the cross. Your sin is forgiven. You've bowed your head, your heart, and your knee before Him. But you're anxious and you're not trusting. God gave us a gift and He gave us a baby for Christmas one time. And it was the once and forever gift. Would you let it quiet your heart today? If you don't know this gift, would you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Admit your sin to God right now in the privacy of your own heart and mind. God, I'm a sinner, 
And I accept this baby Jesus as my Savior who went to the cross that I can have everlasting life. I'll be hanging around the foyer. You talk to me. I'm glad to do that. Pastor Everett's here. Others pull our sleeve. We'll be glad to sit down and talk. And so, Father, thank you for giving us a baby for Christmas. Thank you for giving Janet and me, Jonathan, in the most special way. What a remarkable gift that was. But, but infinitely more, thank you for giving us this baby that was born unto us, demonstrating how much you love people and how you salvage sinners. And may this baby be our peace this Christmas. May we worship him as never before. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things, asking your blessing as we depart. Amen.